Should we get something to eat before the film? Yeah, can do. Just the usual for me. Lovely stuff. I'm starving. And the process here is quite simplistic. Excuse me? All right, lads. What can I get you? Um, can I get a hot pod, please? No worries. Do you want swearing on that? Yes. Can I have plenty of... A dash of... And a side of... On its way, anything to drink? Yes, all of it in a bucket. At least 43% proof. Excellent. And do you want any mistakes with your order? What do you mean? Well, getting stuff from the mic. Non-accurate transmission dates. What do you think we're here to see? Coming up in this afternoon, Slugly Cinematographical Soiree. My first exposure to this delightful piece of cinematography was when it landed uh, entirely legitimately on my doormat about a week ago. And, um, well, yeah, it's certainly a film. <laughs> I tell you what's achievable. You can get a supporting actress who looks like Petula Clark to appear in the film. <laughs> That's what you can do. Here we get eight solid minutes of needlessly lengthy exposition cut over four scenes where I think editor John Scott must have gone out to the toilet. So he was involved in the, the film and he didn't appear in vision. What a waste. If you had the option, you know, you wouldn't either. If you right. stepped on set and saw that going on, you'd be like, I'll be over there in a bin bag. <laughs> Exit! Stage left! You're all right. Hello and welcome to the Peggy Mount Sunday Matinee Hour. I'm Dr. Velvet. I'm Blackout. And we're here to crack open a cassette casing of the VHS video variety in order to view some 1980s cinema on the small screen. Yes, hello you. Thanks for swinging by for this slipshod, salacious scrutiny of small screen cinema because there's nothing on the telly, so producer Ken's been down the video shop to rent out the latest blockbuster. If you go over to PeggyMountPod.com, info and gubbins for the film we're discussing is in the show notes, plus you can find us on the socials, get in touch to say hello, or suggest things that you would like us to cover in the future. Yes, you really can. Now... There's not just the two of us here. Hells no! Joining us this week are the dynamic duo from the Exton Moss Experiment. Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Hello. Ahoy, ahoy. Are you all right? Um, yeah, I'm grand. Tickety-boo and a half, gentlemen. Good, good, good. Simon, I've got for you, I've got the Ruth Maddock blanket that you wanted. Um, so you can put that over your knees while we're watching this. How did you know? And Ken, uh, there's the Button Moon pint glass. <gasps> oh, oh, I shall remember this day. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. In fact, speaking of things to put in a pint glass... Yes, just before we take umbrage at our superior and retire to stagger around with a bottle shouting at strangers in the street, I've got to ask, what are we all having to drink? Uh, gin. I mean, par for the course. What kind of gin? It's kind of an odds and ends of, bo end of bottles that I had left over that I've slung together in a decanter. You're drinking dregs, aren't you, Simon? You're drinking dregs. Pretty much. It's quite nice. I love it. It's got some bits floating in it, but it's all right. <laughs> I love it. 
Mr. Moss. Well, I've got a can of something that uh, I have left over from our guest appearance on the Noribati Disaster Show. Uh, it is the vocation brewery Yeasty Boys Breakfast Club Waffle and Blueberry Breakfast Stout. Uh, I mean, a snip at 6.9%. Uh, I've been saving this for a special occasion. Let's see what it's like. I'm on the edge of me crackers. Oh, dear Christ. My eyes are burning. Oh, Wow, that's, uh, I feel like I should be sat on a park bench. <laughs> wow. Uh, a recommendation? Um, should I ask you later in A&E? All this fuss about something you can actually buy and he still wants to try Squatter's Cocktail at some point. It might be similar, actually, what you're drinking there. The effect might be similar to what I'm having. Brace yourself. What are you drinking? Taboo and Coke. Taboo? There you go. They still make it. There you go. Taboo, the 80s liqueur, with its partner in crime, Mirage, if you remember, okay? Yes. <laughs> now, you see, I remember, I remember being stood at a bar in my local town on a Friday night in 1989. I distinctly remember this, waiting to be served. A woman in front of me ordered Taboo and Coke, and I'll never forget the barman saying, Coke? With Taboo? That sounds shit, that! And I've always meant to try it. So I am... And I have, and it is. <laughs> Blackout, what are you drinking? Well, I have got a bottle of Mior IPA from the St. Ives Brewery. I've been to St. Ives, that's what it is. Nice. And, sorry, what was the name of it? Mior, as in Port Mior, which is ah, one of the beaches in St. Ives. Yeah, 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 it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As oh, opposed nice. to Tony nice Mior. Nice little local craft ale. I mean, it's not terribly local to you. Well, it was when I was there. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, gentlemen, it is up, up and away as we go from shit-faced solitude to sensible sobriety in spandex in the form of this comic book-themed offering of yore. Look up to the screen. Is it a well-composed musical? Is it a clever parody? No! It's the return of Captain Invincible. The Return of Captain Invincible is an Australian 1983 musical fantasy satire written by Andrew Gatey and Stephen E. D'Souza, directed by Philippe Mora. It stars Alan Arkin as the eponymous superhero, gifted his powers by an alien intervention and used to great effect by the US government during the Second World War before he was hounded out of the country during the Red Scare of the 1950s. After lying down and out for decades in Australia, Cap was brought out of retirement by Patty Patria, played by Kate Fitzpatrick, a police officer who urges him to help when America is being threatened by his old nemesis, Mr. Midnight, the magnificent Sir Christopher Lee, who has stolen a secret government hypno-ray and begun using it for nefarious ends. But in order to save the world, Captain Invincible will have to start by conquering his very worst enemy, himself, and just maybe singing a few songs along the way. So, this had a small and somewhat troubled release in 1983, before finding its way to the fledgling home video market. I don't think anyone really saw it back in that day, so instead I'll ask, when was the return of Captain Invincible first brought to your attention? Uh, about three weeks ago. Yeah, for me, it was about the beginning of the year when it came through on our production list. So there you are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
I'd, no, I'd never heard of this. <clears throat> I'd never heard of this, which is odd for me. I saw it in the late 80s. Mm. And it was one of the films that I saw when I went to the Brighton World Science Fiction Convention. Right. And other than Christopher Lee slinking around in leather and singing, I didn't remember an awful lot about it. Was it presented in a sort of tongue-in-cheek fashion? Uh, it was just, here's a video room. If you fancy watching it, watch it. If you don't, don't. And what about yourself, Ken? Is this your first time? Uh, oh, you never forget your first time. Uh, mine, my first exposure to this delightful piece of cinematography was when it landed uh, entirely legitimately on my doormat about a week ago. And, um, well, yeah, it's certainly a film. <laughs> Isn't it though? <laughs> well, it's worth pointing out. It's worth pointing out before we lay into it. Yeah. Captain Invincible had a budget of seven million dollars. For comparison, 1978 Superman, the film which clearly inspired the production of this, had a budget of fifty-five million. Mm. Now, what do we really think is achievable when the production crew are handed twelve percent of the money needed to make the thing they've just been shown? They can. Even, I'll, I'll tell you what's achievable. Even Condor Man had fourteen million dollars thrown at it. Yeah, I tell you what's achievable. You can get a supporting actress who looks like Petula Clark to appear in the film. <laughs> That's what you can do. That's what you can do. Anyway, we'll, we start very promisingly with this. We start with. She a, doesn't a hot... sing like Petula Clark, though, does she? With the very best one in the world, mm. when she sings, we don't know what it's like because that's not her voice. That's someone else. Oh yes, yes, that's true. It's um, it's Hamble from Play School. <laughs> so we start with this beautiful movie a hark back to the cinematic serials of of the american 40s um mm-hmm. this this takes me back actually to something i've just watched recently uh the, the 1943 batman serial that, that that happened i don't know why it happened he looked a right prick in it um, but yeah, uh, what a lovely little montage at the beginning. Well, I say montage, it's 15 solid minutes, man. Well, this is the thing, it's like, we get some newsreel footage showing Captain Invincible fighting crime in the Prohibition area. Um, then we got, like, the height of his World War II hairdo. We cycle through the Congressional hearing, where he hangs up his cape. In any other movie, this would be a 90-second catch-up montage sequence. Yep. Spinning newspaper headlines, shortcuts, the works. And yeah... Here we get eight solid minutes of needlessly lengthy exposition cut over four scenes where I think editor John Scott must have gone out to the toilet. Was it was was it just the eight minute, was it? It's just eight minutes. It feels like twice that, but yes, it's just eight minutes. I'll tell you what, it was educational in a certain way because um, I, uh, there's a map during the montage and something's there. There's a word, buckhouse. Is that German for brothel? <laughs> ah, but there were, there were two in that montage. There was oh. Buck House and Fook House. Ah, I didn't see that, see? Yeah. <sighs> Always keep your eyes on the prize, gentlemen. Do you know what I mean? Every time. But you're right. In terms of exposition, the newsreel flashbacks, they work. We do see the rise and fall. Yeah, they, they work almost in real time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> the bit where he's sitting in the front of the plane, he just looks like an utter tool. Yes, he does. I think fair. that's intentional. It is. Well, I, you would hope so. But, I mean, yeah, you know, there's a lot of... Again, this is this section is very sort of tongue-in-cheek, both of the genre, 
that is trying to sort of mimic now, plus the newsreel footage of the past. I did like that bit at the very start in the Prohibition clip where the voiceover goes, hidden cameras recorded this sensational scene of bootleggers in action. They must be very well hidden, mate. That opening cuts a fucking crane shot. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you're right. It is a very tongue-in-cheek, particularly with um, Captain Invincible's aesthetic as well. He reminds yeah. me of the George Reeves Superman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always thought, even as a kid, I was not blinded by George Reeves' casting. Uh, I always thought he looked like a fart. He didn't. He didn't cut it for me ever. Right. He he, he didn't. But God, God rest his soul. Uh, yeah. Am I the only person that thought Alan Arkin looked like um, Robert Downey Jr.? Yes. Yes. How how much did you had to drink that day <laughs> when you were watching it? Um, I wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't on this battery acid, but uh, I was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Just just me then. I did exclaim when it, when he first appeared because I'm I <clears throat> my movie going days are are over. I don't, I'm not a big cinema fan. I'm more TV. I screamed, "Oh, it's Peggy's husband from Edward Scissorhands!" In my ignorance, uh-huh. um, <laughs> that's that's where it it sort of clicked with me. But yeah, mm. I'm just going to put it out on front street. I do enjoy Arkin's performance in this. He shouts his way through every scene, but that's Alan Arkin. He clearly thinks he's going to be in a better film, and I admire his optimism. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, I've, I've no problems with his performance. Um, even even when we cut to present day after this montage. Well, just before we do, um, what, I, what I wanted to say is that I, re- I did actually quite like the McCarthy-style hearings that were right at the end. They went on yes. a bit too long, uh-huh. um, yes. but... They really kind of pre-shadowed the kind of anti-hero stuff that we're getting nowadays with things like The Boys. I'm, I'm sure that wasn't deliberate, but this I thought it comes was, up it was later done quite in well. my notes. Yes, there are various things that this film does, which is like uh, slightly ahead of its time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, then after after this lengthy backstory, then we get another two minutes of uh, William Motzing's swooping orchestral score. And helicopter shots over a title sequence. Yeah. Two minutes. Has the editor been told he's not getting paid if the film comes out under an hour and a half? <laughs> uh, it's Well, it's, it's, it's lack of a script. Um, our beloved captain on top of a cliff, minders pissed and singing at the top of his lungs while a, uh-huh. a helicopter circles him. I mean, we've all been yeah. there, haven't we? Haven't we? I think that's where the budget went, on the fuel for the helicopter, the number of passes it does. About 75 grand down payment to get a helicopter out there. <laughs> I think Captain yeah. Invincible had just seen the promo poster for the film and realised he was the bastard love child of Sam Neill and Bjorn Ulvaeus. Uh, because I don't know what photo <laughs> image they were using, but that is not Alan Arkin on that picture. Yeah. And yeah. The, pose, the pose was a little bit Flesh Gordon, wasn't it? Again, intentional, I would imagine, but yeah. I never saw that, Flesh Gordon. I remember seeing posters for that not long after Flash Gordon outside the Odeon in Newcastle upon Tyne City Centre. And I never got to see that. I must have been about eight. So I never got to see that at the time. If you bear in mind when we used to get videos out of Ritz, mm. they had it on the shelf then. Did they? And we w- we would always like pick up the case and then put it back and then get something else. <laughs> see? Um, it doesn't have the production values of this. Oh, God. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> but it it is quite funny. Okay. Um, and the Pinosaurus has to be seen to be believed. 
the whole way through this film, you know, having been having only known of it for a few days now, the whole way through the film, all I was thinking was, this is like some crazy mashup between Superman, the Rocky Horror Picture yep. Show, and Plan yep. Nine from Outer Space. It was. I think you've uh, been reading my notes. Can I you? think you've been reading mine as well. Yes, yes, I think you have. Yes, that's that's insane. Okay, okay, we we're all on the same page then. Um, all right, story wise, cut to Manhattan with a fabulous story. narrator and a lovely a lovely zoom shot of Chris Lee. This is quite well stylized, I think. A lot of the actual cinematography in it. Yeah isn't too bad. The yeah. editing is absolutely all over the shot. Oh. But some of the shots themselves and some of the lighting behind it... Done with the rolling decent. pin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But in this beginning, this film is very self-aware at this point. Yes, yeah. It knows what it wants to be and it knows what it has to do and mm -hmm. it, it's cracking on. Christopher Lee starts singing... And this is something to watch for, despite anything else. And I get the is feeling... Is this the bit where he starts singing for no reason? Yes. Uh, yes. He's not doing one of the songs. He's, he's literally right. just, like, yeah. in the middle of a scene, just feels like singing. It's not in the script. That no might. one's going to stop him. Yep. And he just does it. He's loving this. He's loving this yeah. because he hasn't got a yes. cape on and fangs in his mouth. So he's loving this. I'm loving the idea that Captain Invincible has gone missing after being, you know, sort of hounded out of the country, right? Mm -hmm. And the government's put out a request for finding him. And yet, when he appeared on some random news report on American television two days earlier, looking and sounding precisely like Captain Invincible, no one noticed, as if there's no footage of him from 30 years earlier that we've all just had to sit through. And yeah. then a policewoman in Australia, who's never even heard of the man before, recognises him because of a tramp she literally met that morning. She'd met him quite a few times before, because... Um, the before she goes along to move him on, it was, this is the same bloke from last week and the week before and the week before. And You're week, absolutely week before. right. I stand corrected, yes. No one's, no one's sort of asked, why is he American? There's absolutely no reason for that. This world-famous superhero, 30 years later, everyone's dead from then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did she not recognise him or, or trigger a thought because a black Volkswagen Beetle dropped from 100 feet in the air about three feet from her? And thought, hmm, that, that's a bit curious. That tramp, there's something about him. Now, let me just dig back through the old memories here. Or am I just reading too much into it? Am I I'm just giving it far too much credit? I don't understand how the two guys in the Black Beetle get arrested, basically for trying to murder a police officer. Then they keep showing up in the rest of the film because they've been let out the next day. Why? Well, obviously, spinal surgery is much better in Australia than it is in England. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, and they were bailed out by a posh lawyer because there's the bit in the police station going on about who basically saying how come these scangers have got a good lawyer. Oh, I say I missed that. I wasn't. Yeah, I was too busy banging a tin tray on my head waiting for the film to stop. Yeah, there's that. There's that. Can any of us at this point, certainly, well, certainly Ken from this at this point in time, ha if you'd watched this at ten years old. Would this? Would you have gone? Oh my God! Yes, this is great. This is superheroes. This is quite funny. This is quite. We, we, we don't know where we're going with this. That's a very good question. I might have done. You see, bear in mind, um, at oh, what would have been six, seven, eight, something like that. I was exposed to Howard the Duck, and I thought it was a wonderful film, but largely because I was, um, you know, I was sat with the girl next door, 
and uh, yeah, we, we had a we had a bit of a thing for each other at that age, so it was just an excuse for me to sit with the girl next door. Maybe Howard the Duck on repeat viewing might not be the classic I thought it was when I was preschool. Um, this I don't know. It's the script's a bit all over the place. The some of the I, I, the yeah. the, uh, the dialogue that Christopher Lee's given. I, this was a man who certainly by that point was a, a giant in the cinema industry. And he was presented with the script and read it with such dynamic, you know, belief in this script, even though it was clearly diabolically shit and didn't make any sense. And he still put his all into it and it's still dire. And at no point did he turn around... <laughs> Uh, bearing his fangs, cape flying in the wind and saying, I'm not reading this pile of shite, I'm back. I, I can't believe he actually did this film. I can't imagine that it's high up on his, his CV or... Um, or, or Was he actually a giant at the time? I think it would have been oh, be between God, peaks of giantness because he was big in the 70s, early 70s, 60s with the, the hammer stuff and was big again later with the Lord of the Rings stuff. But uh, this would have been a lull in his career because mm -hmm. this, would have been, this would have been the same year as the House of Long Shadows with him and um, John Carradine and Vincent Price and somebody else. All st and the whole point of that film is harking back to their glory days in the uh, as stars of horror films and the fact that they weren't anymore. So I'm not sure he would have been a... Um, a cinema giant at this point in his career. I agree. I think he's in his lull here. I think it's also got to be said that as a bit of the Alan Arkin in play where he's turning up, he's looking at the script, he's giving it his best, everything after that is down to the editing team. He's done all he can. You know, you, you rarely stand on a film set. You might get a vibe whether it's going to be good or not, but you rarely know what the finished thing is going to look like. I don't think anyone on that set had the finished that finished product in mind while they were there because they'd have just gone home. <laughs> so, you know, I don't think anybody had in mind the musical bullshit scene um, con conducted <laughs> by the president of the United uh, was it United States or Australia? Now this now this particular this particular scene this round table where all the military leaders get together and they're discussing the hypno ray and its theft. Yeah, this is the absolute crystallization of this film's absolute lack of direction. Yes, yes. All of this was shot on the first take with no one having a fucking clue what they were supposed to be doing. To be fair, yeah. though, to be fair, this is and this is very important, this shows what can be written under the influence of Creme de Month and Tramadol. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, I don't believe in the concept of so bad it's good. We've been over this before. Yep. But I will say that Michael Pate's performance as the President of the United States, is so horrifically over the top yep. that it instantly becomes the second best thing in the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> can we, can we, can we have a, can we have a quick... Ken, Ken, can we have a quick clip of the bullshit song? Bullshit! Bullshit! Bullshit, 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 bullshit! Bullshit, 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 bullshit! Bullshit! Yeah, I'm sitting there like, what is this? What, what am I watching? Am I having a stroke? Well, <laughs> well, to be honest, I thought it was that good. I did have a stroke. But it... it um... Well, 
Um, I don't know who was doing the casting for this scene, but all the female characters look as though they've just wandered in off a porn set, and all of the male characters look as though they've just wandered in from a porn theatre. Even the one with the robot hand. If you're if you're unsure uh, when you're sat watching this, uh, what am I watching? This this just spells it out, doesn't it? This is everything underlined right now. You're absolutely right. This is there is a bookmark to put in here because we're 19 minutes in and we get our first song. Yeah. Followed by immediately followed by um we need a hero. Yeah. It's only at this point that we're told this film is a musical. That's quite the reveal. It is. It really is. And as we're going to find out over the course of like basically 100 minutes there's not really enough songs in this for it to be classed as a musical no but there are far too many for it not to be that's right <laughs> that's right we get we get nine songs in total right three of which are written by richard o'brien and richard hartley from the rocky horror show uh three of which are written by brad love i say three one of those is bullshit i don't think that counts the other three have been penned by six writers between them and they're all in massively different styles. None of this hangs together. Uh-huh. <laughs> the only thing that links these songs is that they're on the same soundtrack album. Uh, I did mention Kate Fit- Fitzpatrick, uh, bearing a striking resemblance to Petula Clark. Depending on the light, she also looks like Ailsa from Home and Away. Are you suggesting that after this she changed her name and went into daytime soaps? She was she was Nell Mangles' stunt double in Neighbours. <laughs> as a kind of witness protection program that kind of thing something like that yeah just while we're on the subject of the songs mm. christopher lee <laughs> sings a song yeah to disable an alcoholic by unveiling a bar and offering him drinks it's Possibly. one of the highlights of the film for me <laughs> it's the highlight of the film but yes go on did Christopher Lee actually... Were there any practice runs with Christopher Lee singing or did they just... Give it your best shot, Chris. See how it comes out. I, I, I was going to say his direction may well have been give it your best shot, try for opera and remember Rex Harrison couldn't sing either. Well, bear in mind, you know, he's not singing that on the set. That's pre-recorded. That's that right. That recorded version is the final version. He's just miming to that. That's fine. I'm absolutely 100% okay with it. And it's all very well thinking that Richard O'Brien's involvement in this, you know, it might lift the production after his 1975 masterwork, The Rocky Horror Picture Show. But don't forget that by this point, he'd gone on to make shock treatment in 1981. That is the O'Brien that we get here. So, <laughs> just, so hang on a minute. With I've, I've gone on about this being like a mashup between the Rocky Horror Picture Show and Plan 9 from Outer Space. Richard O'Brien actually was involved in this. Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. <laughs> he wrote... He wrote Did three of the songs. He wrote three of the songs. He sings on one of them. Yep. What? Yeah. We'll get, we'll get to that. It's near the end. It's so fun. he was involved in the, the film and he didn't appear in Vision. What a waste. <laughs> if you had the option... You know, you wouldn't either. That's if you right. stepped on set and saw that going on, you'd be like, I'll be over there in a bin bag. <laughs> Being hit by baseball bats. I tell you what, I'll be operating one of them Hoovers. That's fine for me. Oh! And oh. We're, we're getting ahead. We're getting ahead. The Hoover scene. This is... We're getting ahead. Absolutely incredible, but yes, we're getting ahead. This film can go anywhere. We cut from a scene where folk end up in partial undress due to some kind of magnetic power that the the protagonist has followed directly mm-hmm. by a covert little person dressed as red riding hood 
hidden behind a car outside. It's crackers, this. This film's crackers. <laughs> Absolutely nuts. So that's, um, we skip over to uh, to downtown Sydney, where Captain Invincible... That's why it's Petula Clark. There we go. <laughs> um, and we get, like, a, a very kind of, like, mournful country number from Alan Arkin, which, again, in and of itself... It's a decent song. It just doesn't really belong in this film, and it doesn't fit in with anything else. It doesn't, but I, wa- on, but I was riveted. In fact, I didn't want to leave the screen. What I want to know is, how come when the president turns up... The president of the United States of America! <laughs> how come when he turns up, right? <laughs> that kid in the Second World War footage, who just keeps dropping in that he's going to be president one day, he's mm. got to be, what, eight, ten years old at the outside? Yep. Now, America joined the war effort in 1941... Which means that when he turns up as the actual president in the early 80s, Michael Pate's character is supposed to be around 40 years old. Where was his paper round? Death Valley! (laughs) (laughs) Clive Swift, that's all I'll say. Actually, Michael Pate was born in 1920, so he was 63 when this film was released. It's it's not like, you know, that's a... That's just miscasting. Really, that's all there is to it. I think his mouth was being operated by animatronics. It was completely independent from the rest of his face. So this whole idea, like you were saying, about this washed-up superhero, is um, he's rehearsing his like forgotten shtick in front of his like a personal trailer and a press team and these government officials. It all feels very ahead of its time for 1983, mm. where like the heroes here are as valuable for their PR presence as they are their superpowers. They're assets rather than people. Now, Return of Captain Invincible landed two years before Watchmen, and the deconstruction of the genre on screen didn't really start for about another 15 years. I'm not saying that this film is a trailblazer, but it was doing things in 1983 for which there wasn't yet an audience. Yeah. Which is worth bearing in mind in some of its moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you got to the Hoover bit yet? Well, no, because there's the falling off the bar training montage bit yet. Which was quite a nice take on the kind of Rocky-style training montages that you got sick to death of in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. That was 76, am I right? Yes. Did Rocky ever, did Rocky ever chew the edge off somebody's bar? <laughs> I mean, you know, what goes on in the training room stays in the training room. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's very hammily done. But there is a strong subplot here about addiction and self-defeat and mania. And in different hands, this film could have had a lot more to say. And again, it just falls at that hurdle. It's just, you know, is it a comedy? Is it a drama? No, it's Alan Arkin biting a chunk out of the Formica. Fair enough, there we go. Right, all because he's literally just seen a bottle. And then we get Petula Clark badly miming to a song. It's very rare for me to be speechless on a podcast, but this... this <laughs> I mean, let's be fair, it's not very exciting listening if you're just so stunned by what you've watched that you can't actually comment on it. But, but this was it? Is it? Do the rest of your notes just say, bullshit, bullshit, <laughs> bullshit, 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 bull, bullshit, shit, shit. <laughs> just... With some yes, with some great clamshell mouth, and uh, yeah, I, I, I'm trying to, I'm trying desperately to cling on to, to bits of the film that I quite. There's one bit that I thought was quite clever, uh, that was quite nice, 
didn't make any sense, but it was there, that Captain Invincible's secret lair is in the head of the Statue of Liberty, hence why it's been closed off for 30 years. Thought that was quite mm-hmm. nice. Now, why yep. he'd got so pissed that he'd forgotten this, flown off to Australia and stood waving his arms on a cliff for three decades, was better than living in the Statue of Liberty? I don't know. It's not even that. It's the fact that he's been missing for 30 years and no one's repossessed the flat. <laughs> All of his stuff is just there, untouched. The uh, the tour guide says sort of earlier on, because they're like, oh, can we go up into the, the, the head of the Statue of Liberty? And the tour guide's like, no, 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 they closed that off years ago. So it kind of sets up that something's going to be done with it. But you're like, well, everyone's going to know that that's his gaff, right? You know, really. It, it's not like he's triple padlocked it and then welded the door shut. Come on. Would this be the tour guide who is one of the regulars from Rowan and Martin's Laughing? Oh, well spotted. He's done his alumni research. Oh, God, there isn't much. <laughs> but before we get to the Hoover, we've got his origin story. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you see, I didn't really think about that. Bang, there we go. Origin, black and white what? origin story. Weird, pervy aliens dogging. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was alien porn. <laughs> it, was watching, it was the aliens watching them shag um, and then all finishing at the same time and having a ciggy. Yeah, the weirdest thing, it might be like Patty going, how did all this start? What, what was what was the beginning of all this Captain Invincible? And he goes, well, that's a long story. And then it isn't. It's like a one-minute montage. It's shorter yeah. than his fucking war years. It's it, a long story, wanking aliens. Yeah. <laughs> oh, are we going to ignore the elephant in the room in this film? Oh, come on, let's get to the scene where the Hoovers fillet each other to death. Then, and then... Yes. Captain Invincible yes. and Patty yes. get attacked by a shop full of hoovers. Here we go. Because of course they do. This was incredible. At least the special effects team were having fun that day. What the fuck? <laughs> well, somebody had seen John Pertwee's phone cable scene, hadn't they? They had. They had. Absolutely that. Oh, I've seen this on Doctor Who somewhere. Have you? Oh, by the way, give us, a, give us another go of that glue bag while we create this. <laughs> and off they went. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, no fucks given at all. Is it yeah. explained in the film, bearing in mind I've watched it twice, is it explained in the film why they're in a Hoover shop? I'm allowed to say Hoover and not vacuum cleaner because there are like massive actual branded Hoover stickers all over the place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Why, why, wh- what led them into that? No, you, 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 you just, just why? Why? <laughs> you just needed to stop there. None of this made any sense. It's just a missing reel, isn't there? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're, we're sitting here trying to work it out. Like, no, it's always been like that, mate. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Good God. It, we, 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 we managed to lose the fight with the Hoovenator, and then his minions came in. That's where the film picks up again. Yeah, I'm sorry, it was, it was confusing. By the time we're in disguise down the drain, I'm, I'm bored with this film. It's running out of steam. <laughs> but, uh, 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 yeah. It's running yeah. out of steam. It was at full pelt up to this point. As well as having seen John Pertwee's um, phone cable scene, Captain Invincible talks about reversing the polarity. Polarity, yes, he does. Yes, he does. You've mentioned the editing of this film earlier on, that it was done with a blunt axe in the dark. Uh-huh. uh-huh. But who was the lighting cameraman on this thing? Because the scenes vary from a 15-watt bulb yep. to a magnesium strip set on fire. <laughs> yes. Yes. yes, yes, they do. The only time the lightning is remotely acceptable is when you're in Christopher Lee's lair. 
Yeah. And even then, it's just like, you'll get like a, a fantastic silhouette shot, but then he'll start speaking and you're like, are we not meant to be able to see his face for this bit? No, no, it's still just a silhouette, is it? Fine, okay, carry on. I genuinely think this was filmed chronologically, and by the point that we're talking at now, everyone had just thought, I can't be fucking arsed with this. Should we, should we just, should we just, just crack on? Except that that animatronic vulture was the best special effect in the whole thing, and probably cost half the budget. Yeah. Or better than the Hoovers. It looked like something, it really looked like something out of the Dark Crystal. It was massively underused, but I thought it was great. The cafe shootout was decent. I want that fish gun as a water pistol. But um, but who you know who doesn't like a cake fight? It was like a, a nod to um, Bugsy Malone. This it was. It was indeed. Uh, you see, it didn't work for me. The combination of bullets and custard pies. Um, no. Yeah. Although I did quite like the visual gag where they had a um, a metal copy of the the symbol pie that they they throw and, and knock it out. Yeah, yeah. And did you notice who the man behind the the counter was? Frank Pickle. It was Frank Pickle. So traumatised by this... By being one of the Super Mario brothers with a fish gun that he he decided to have a nervous breakdown and go and be the parish clerk in Dibley Village. And he'd also been Commander Zero in Fireball XL5. Was he he in that? I didn't know that. He was. And after this... He went on and appeared in the Torch for Silverado episode of Virtual Murder. <laughs> Gotta say, I'm slightly disappointed that we're, in terms of the film, we're back in New York now. Mm. And none of you have mentioned that lovely back projection scene as Captain Invincible flies at what appears to be about 30 miles an hour from Sydney to New York, a distance of just under 16,000 miles. <laughs> right? Like Patty's not going to be dead of exposure on his back. <laughs> they're not even they're not even pretending to make that realistic because she she's there sort of shuffling around, reading, sorting through things in her handbag. Uh-huh. That really was quite shit. Yeah. Although to be fair, if it had flown there in half an hour, she would have been charcoal within about three seconds. So probably the thirty. <laughs> mm. Split yeah, the difference. Split the yeah, and she probably did on landing. Um, <laughs> So it becomes pretty much spelled out by this point what Mr. Midnight is actually doing. Um, He's using the stolen hypno-ray to convince New York's citizens of immigrant and ethnic minority stock to move into these new housing estates in the shadow of Ellis Island. Then he's going to kill them all to make the city pure. Now that's a pretty fucking bold storyline for 1983. Hey, rather. And he's kidnapped hot gossip. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So am I right in thinking that it's completely intentional that when Mr. Midnight says the words the pure genetic Americans, he's deliberately misunderstood the fact that modern America was built on immigration and the original people he's referring to are largely dead because of just that. Like he's not the first one to have carried out this plan. Once you remove all of the groups that Mr. Midnight is planning to round up, all that's left is people of British ancestry. This is like an intentionally satirical point, isn't it? Because no one in the screenplay mentions it at all, and this is not a film of subtlety. So, uh-huh, uh-huh. and it, in retrospect, it is a bit Brexity. Oh God, here we go. God, put your tin hat on. Fucking hell, into the air raid shelter. <laughs> to be fair, it's entirely set up when you see Hitler in the first sort of three minutes. It's just not referred to that. That's what's going on. 
No, no, it is. Actually, though, there was a thing I wanted to, a final thing I wanted to mention about the um, the scene in the deli, which is where he's doing his I want to be Frank Sinatra song at the end, just before he falls down the, the manhole or yeah. whatever. Um, Patty's face is just an absolute picture of what the fuck are you doing? It is you so a member of the audience at this point. <laughs> it is just. For Christ's sake. Um, Ken, when I talk about resting bitch face, that's what that was. <laughs> I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Um, and then he spends about a million years falling down this hole. It must have gone three times around the centre of the earth before it got to um, Captain Midnight or Mr. Midnight's headquarters. You've got my notes here, haven't you? Go on. Where he's greeted by the cast of the League of Gentlemen. Oh, I thought you were going to have the... I've got the, like, he falls... Miles under the surface of New York. He's fallen, 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 fallen. And when he gets to the bottom, there's daylight coming in through the windows. Okay, mate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he's falling He's falling downwards and his cloak is flowing backwards as well. And then, finally, <laughs> finally, we get to the only, we get to the only section that anyone knows from this film and deservedly so. Might I say that I'm old-fashioned, très fan ordinaire. So highball the vodka and name your sting. Be a big shot with a bull shot. Be a swine, meet a pine. Have a shot or a pot or a snot of any sort. Rusty spumante. Now, I think it's clear that more focus has gone into this segment uh-huh. than the rest of the film combined. <laughs> Apart from anything else, if a song full of bad puns and tortured rhymes about idolising booze doesn't just scream the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour, right. then I don't know what <laughs> right. does. Right, absolutely that. <laughs> it would have been better if it wasn't sung through a wet sponge so that we could have actually understood the lyrics. It was a little... I was picking through the bones of the words. Uh, sorry. Did you look up the lyrics online? No. <laughs> I was, look I was up just... the lyrics online mm. and then listen to the song again. And it, sort of, it makes sense when you can see what the words are. The problem is it works better on the page than it does sung out loud. <laughs> yes. It's, it's, it's very, very nicely written. It's just, yeah, you know, the performance and everything. I'm prepared to forgive it. Because I love it, but it, it, yeah, you know, you really need the, the bouncy dot at the bottom of the screen and the words. And tonic. <laughs> Again, I'll, I'll, fuck it, no, I'll just say it now. The phrase, if you don't name your poison, I'll have to get the poison, yes. is the best <laughs> lyric of all time. <laughs> it is, I, I, never in a million years would I write that. It is I, fucking outstanding. Well, they were very proud of that line because it got repeated about eight times. Mm-hmm. Rightly so. <laughs> and yes, this is one of the ones um, written by Richard O'Brien and Richard Hartley from off of the Rocky Horror Show. And this is, it's at this point that the film is the closest to Rocky Horror and the closest it gets to being what it wants to be. Mm-hmm. I think this was shown to the investors. Like before it was made and they all thought all of it was going to be like this so they threw the money down for it yeah well the big p- set piece is done now Captain Invincible recovers from his alcoholic stupor by hearing Kate Smith sing God Bless America 
because that's all that's been needed for three decades, apparently. Um, Mr. Midnight legs it and destroys his own bar with rockets that were pointing right into the room for some reason. <laughs> Leaps oh, yeah. into a pair, a pair of waders. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they go off down into the basement basement. Mm-hmm. And it's only at this point, 93 minutes into the film, does the hero realise what the villain is actually trying to achieve. <laughs> so he blows up a control panel using his magnetic power. He knocks Mr. Midnight over into his paddling pool with a giant beach ball. Then he blows up Mr. Midnight's submarines using the same magnets. This film has a fucking weird idea of how magnets work. Yeah. And that's it. That's the end. That's, that is the end of the film. This yeah. could all have been fixed an hour and a half ago with magnets. Yep. Good Lord. Ooh. We get a stirring speech as he flies around New York at night. Oh, yeah. Um, which leads to the final song, which mm. is the Captain Invincible theme, which is sung by Richard O'Brien. Yes. And we get the uh, the credits... And that version of it incorporates a sort of knockoff version of Peter Gunn, which it, it's all very odd. It you was know, like, very Peter Gunn, is wasn't it? Ju- is this just enough out of copyright to be usable? Is that it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, God. I think by this point the catatonia must have set in because I don't remember any of what you've just said. You lucky bastard. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I just remember the, the drink song and then a bit of shash and then the end credits and that was that's basically what the edit is in my head I, I am I safe to say that there we are gentlemen that's it that's 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 us that's our thoughts I think it is on I think it is the return of Captain Invincible good lord I have two more comments go for it firstly the 12-year-old child in me sniggered every time I heard Legend in Leotard. Yeah, fair. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the fa- my final comment is that this film boasts a Doctor Who alumnus. Oh, who forgot? Yeah. Bill Hunter, and I can't remember what he played in the film, was one of the Guardians in the first half of the arc. Okay. Boom, there we go. That's why we get the experts in. Uh, and where are they then? <laughs> now, now. I, I love the arc. The arc, a Doctor Who story that's two insurance write-offs welded together, <laughs> much like this film. Yeah. This film, uh, as a final note, mm-hmm. it's like someone's picked up a lot of different bits of other films that were just left lying around, crudely welded them together into some sort of weird Australian homunculus and thought, that'll do. Again, you're reading my notes. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> and again, yes, that's your that's your Plan Nine comparison, and damned accurate. And you have to realise that the eighties was the time of trauma. Um, you compare this to something like the Sullivans, rabid, rabid grannies, or something, then it has better production values and pretty much everything. Anyway, Mister Moss, how many pegs on the line are you going to give the return of Captain Invincible? Oh, God, really? Um, (laughs) It was there. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think I'm going to profane my DVD player with it anytime soon again. Mm. It was fairly ropey. But it wasn't... uh, I know you've... Blackout, you've you've gone on about uh, things not being so bad they're good. I think that does fall into this category. It it is that bad. Uh, So... (laughs) I'm not saying it isn't that bad. I'm not saying it's that yeah. bad that it's good. 
No, it, 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 it isn't. It, oh, I won't be racing back to this. I, I think because it was it was taped together with blue tack and copy decks and just then put through a Play-Doh masher. Two. Dr. Exton. Well, this this really took me back to the time of trauma and all of those really low-budget 80s films, which were quite a lot of fun. I quite enjoyed this, and I'm going to give it a seven. What? And I will be watching this again. There you go. Good God, man! Oh. Good Lord. Yeah. <laughs> fair play, fair play. Fair play, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um... I imagine Blackout's got about seven pages on this final thoughts. My, minor, <laughs> minor brief, minor brief. Um, I will say that 10-year-old me in 1983 would have wanted to love this. I, right. I would have got it. The parody, the silliness, and I really would have got the parody. Um, but then again, it wasn't being aimed at me. If, if This is literally Stan Lee and Richard O'Brien going on the piss for three days without sleep. This is the result. <laughs> Um, I have to revert to the classic answer of I can see what you're trying to do but you're not quite there mm-hmm. a generous five pegs from me see I feel like a right bastard now I'm, I'm on team 10 with this one um, <laughs> you... The Return of Captain Invincible mm. is a sort of retooling of the Captain America story in reaction to Richard Donner's Superman while pre-channeling Crocodile Dundee in the style of Rocky Horror. Now, I very much put this on the same shelf as Howard the Duck. It was made at the wrong time before it could be done properly. There's a lot of potential there, and it has so much ambition. Unfortunately, nobody on set or behind the scenes has a fucking clue how to make this work. It's intriguing, but it's deeply flawed. Three out of nine. Fair, fair, fair. However, the question that every recovering alcoholic superhero wants to know... Mr. Blackout is. How many steps would it take you to don a cape and fly up the mountain? It's as easy as one, two, three. <laughs> Captain Invincible is played by Alan Arkin, of course, who appeared in Gross Point Blank with Minnie Driver, who was in a 1992 episode of Lovejoy next to. Chris Jury, who was in the greatest show in the galaxy, of course, alongside Peggy Mount. That woman can't be next. She's only been here five minutes. Well done. Well done. And now I shall pass the super baton to Ken. How many steps, sir? Uh, I'm going to kangaroo bounce up the mountain in but two, you flaming galahs. Starring opposite our hero is Sir Christopher Lee, who was in the 2000 adaptation of Gormenghast with... Spike Milligan, who sat on Jack Parr's sofa for a 1960 episode of The Tonight Show next to... Peggy Mount. None at all, I'm only here with a friend. Beautifully done. Yep. How about yourself, Dr. Velvet? I could do this in a shit face three. <laughs> Run 
relegated to third fiddle in this outing is Kate Fitzpatrick, who appeared in the 1997 straight-to-VHS bonanza Emmerdale, The Dingles Down Under, alongside Steve Hallowell, who had a stint in the first run of All Creatures Great and Small, as did... Dee Sadler, who also shared the stage for the greatest show in the galaxy with... Now, let me cast my mind back. Textbook, which only leaves the incomparable Dr. Exton. Well, I can also do it in three. Oh, aha. Uh-huh. Playing perhaps the least believable US president ever here is Michael Pate, who somehow landed the role again in 1987's Howling 3, where he played opposite... (laughs) Barry Humphreys as Dame Edna Everidge, who starred in 1978's Sgt Pepper's Lonely Heart Club Band with... Donald Pleasance, who was of course given a punishment without crime by... The Invincible Peggy Mount. Well, I'm told it can be fatal. Nice. Very nice. Very nice. Beautiful. Bang tidy. I, I, we, we have to apologise to, uh, to any vegans listening for that cow that was kicked down the stairs during that. <laughs> that, I will have you know, is my grandmother's prize cowbell. It, that had a pride of place on her mantelpiece for as long as I remember. Fuck knows why, because it's not decorative or anything, but... <laughs> it's no, loud. No. It's loud, it's loud. Love it. Oh, and do you know what? That signals... There you go. It does. It signals uh, the end of this week's episode. That's that, gentlemen. A huge thank you to Simon and Ken from the Exton Moss Experiment podcast. Gentlemen, where can our listener find you? We're on SoundCloud and iTunes and Spotify and Google Podcasts and pretty much every platform out there so just search us out but yeah we're um we're very much like uh, the the nora batty disaster experience only less well researched i mean you say that but uh, no they're, they're they're very well researched <laughs> can i just say uh, but there you go make sure you check out their further adventures and speaking of the socials that they've just mentioned Blackout's got hours. Yes, thanks once again for being with us. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email PeggyMountPod at gmail.com or we are at PeggyMountPod on Twitter. You can also find us by searching for the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour on Facebook. Don't forget to go to PeggyMountPod.com to check out the show notes and to browse all of our other episodes. It's as simple as that. It really is. Now, I'm going to eject and then I think I shall be kind and I'm going to rewind. Thank you for listening to the last five weeks of Cinematic Cynicism. We'll be back very soon on the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour. So, until the next time, keep mounting! The Peggy Mount Calamity Hour is a free podcast from Michael Media which holds production copyright. Opinions and recollections expressed are not to be taken as fact. The title and credit music is by Dr. Velvet. Audio segments from television programs are presented for review and informational purposes only under fair use, and no ownership of these is claimed or implied by this show. For more information, visit PeggyMountPod.com. Gentlemen, at one hour and 24 minutes. <laughs> Fucking hell. That's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs> one hour 24. Why do I have 43 minutes? I got some eager, nervy cocks. 
A gin and honey on the rocks Where angels fear to tread I say, choose your bows, let's hit the red eye Think of young Diana Durbin And how she sung on rum and bourbon Or enhance your luncheon hour With a planter's punch and a whiskey sour If you feel like a wreck, try a horse's neck Or a sherry with a cherry in the new fantasize If you Drink, 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 drink. 